1: Yannis, what a pleasure as ever to
2: see you. Pleasure is all mine own. It's good to see you. Good to see. Good you, see you. I'm,
1: I'm in t- indeed, comrade. I'm in Tenerife. You're in your. I'm not on holiday. Just before everyone starts yelling at me, um, you're in your parliamentary office. Of course, you are amongst many other things, an elected member of parliament in Greece. Um, I just want to start, actually, with something which people are obviously talking about a lot in Britain at the moment. And this is the conservative policy of deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda, which is a very poor country with a terrible human rights record in Africa. Now, there were several asylum seekers going to be deported. It ended up being narrowed down. There were huge campaigns, legal challenges. And in the Mm -hmm. end, the European Court of Human Rights intervened. I just want your thoughts, your comments on the policy, what it represents, what you think the government, what's their strategy, and you said you're very proud of the European Court of Human Rights' decision. So I just want to hear your thoughts on those things.
2: Well, on a personal note, um, awfulness, hideousness seems to be following me around. Uh, In the 1980s, I escaped Britain in 1987, 1988, immediately after the Thatcher's third victory, and rushed off to Australia. Now, why am I saying that? Because this awful policy of um, exporting uh, asylum seekers, refugees, to a third world, poor country, started in the 1990s in Australia by you know, Thatcher's reincarnation in the Antipodes. Uh, that little awful man, John Howard, Prime Minister of the Conservative, party, they are the Liberals, they are called. Uh, They are the ones who started this um, abuse of humanity, of uh, taking refugees from Australia and shoving them on a Pacific island, Nairu or somewhere else, Um, a policy that is being pursued to this day. And let's not forget that your Tories copied that policy from the oftenest of Australia. Uh, But it's not just I have to say, as a European citizen, a member of the European Union, uh, that um, the European Union is not immune to this kind of misanthropy. Uh, You will recall that several years ago, uh, the European Union had an agreement with President Erdogan of Turkey uh, to do the same thing with the refugees that ended up on the Greek islands, to return them to Turkey, to have them processed uh, offshore in Turkey, calling Turkey a safe country, even to the Kurds and to the people that were being prosecuted in Turkey, including uh, progressive Turks who were trying to escape Erdogan's regime. And we did the same thing in Libya, Owen. The European Union paid billions, billions over the years to traffickers, human traffickers, uh, instead of arresting them, paying them to construct concentration camps in South Libya, in the middle of the desert, the Sahara Desert, to incarcerate refugees there before they could get to Europe. So, you know, um, that, that, that policy that began with the Australian Tories in the mid 1990s is spreading like a bushfire and threatening to burn down what is left of our ethical, moral uh, fibre. Now, in terms of the moment, the
1: Tories, kind of right wing populist grandstanding, The Brexit deal that Boris Johnson negotiated in the general election, he said it was an oven-baked deal. Mm -hmm. Now, it wasn't quite warm through, to say the least. They're trying to unpick the so-called Northern Ireland Protocol, which I have to say on its own terms is working well. The Northern Irish economy is actually doing slightly better than the rest of the UK economy at the moment. And businesses have adapted. So on those terms, you could say... It's it's worked. It has the support of most elected Northern Irish politicians, but the right wing of the Tories obviously this is a big deal for them. I just thought your thoughts on where things stand with Boris Johnson's oven-ready Brexit deal with the Northern Ireland Protocol, but more generally, what you think about how it's panned out?
2: Well, it was it was oven-ready, uh, except that he wanted recooked. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Because, you know, Boris Johnson is a consummate liar. Um, The way in which he uh, reached an agreement with the EU that uh, Theresa May couldn't, what did he do in order to achieve that? He effectively submitted to a border down the Irish Sea. Because either there was going to be a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, or there was going to be a border down the Irish Sea. So he sold out the DUP. The DUP, very stupidly, <laughs> from its own perspective, you know, it was the longest uh, suicide mission by any political party, what the DUP did, which was to agree to Brexit initially, to campaign f- for Brexit, and then only to realize that one of the two borders would have to be imposed that uh, would undermine the DUP. So he um, usurped the DUP, he won the election with his oven-ready deal, and then he decided, okay, Um, Now what I want to do is I want to maintain the spirit of discontent over Brexit because it's what brought me to power, to 10 Downing Street. And the way to maintain this animosity between London and Brussels was to keep the the, the whole Brexit fiasco going, to prolong it. And a a safe way of doing that was to say, oh, now I'm going to go back on the agreement regarding the border down the Irish Sea. Uh, and what he's banking on is that, because the European Union is like um, a gigantic container vessel in the middle of the Pacific that takes a long time to turn, <laughs> you know, even when they, the captain uh, turns uh, the, the steering wheel manically, that, you know, the container ship takes a long time to turn. He's banking on this thing dragging out for many, many, many months uh, because yeah, he's, going to, he's pushing the... Um, the violation of the Northern Ireland Protocol through the House of Commons. Uh, then that will have to go to the Lords. The European Union will have to have you know, 153 different meetings uh, at different levels uh, of the EU. Uh, so this whole thing is going to be prolonged. The Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail will be slightly placated during this period because he is putting up a fight against Europe. Um, and then there will be some s- of deal with the EU Um hopefully from his perspective, close to the election or after the next election. Um, And remember, number one priority for Boris today is to survive uh, the um, rebellion within his own party. And, you know, stirring up this kind of discontent, uh, post-Brexit, Brexit Brexit discontent is part of the strategy for, for us not to be talking about what we need to talk about, which is refugees, the state of the National Health Service, the way that uh, this by-stealth privatization of the NHS is is proceeding, the fact that um, uh, 10, 12 years of austerity have given rise to a new kind of austerity, which takes the form of the cost-of-living crisis, uh, it's it's a tried-and-tested technique for diverting attention from the things that really matter.
1: So you mentioned the cost of living crisis there, and inflation in the UK is about 10%, so it's the highest now for four decades, uh, accompanied with, of course, at the moment, not just stagnant, but declining economic growth. In the last month, GDP has declined um, in the UK. Um, now, the Bank of England governor has calls for wage restraints. Um, there are strikes planned, for example, rail workers, not just over real terms pay cuts, but over job cuts as well. But the the narrative being woven by the Bank of England, by Boris Johnson and others, is that in an era of inflation, workers must not fight for higher wages. You're an economist, of course, amongst many, many other things. What do you say to that argument?
2: He didn't mind wage inflation when it was the bonuses of the bankers that were going up and the bonuses of the conglomerate uh, directors, right? He didn't mind inflation when it was house prices in Sussex and Kent and South London and North London that were going through the roof. That inflation was good. Uh, It's when uh, workers dare imagine that they may get a pay rise that allows them to put food on the table that suddenly Armageddon is uh, at the gates. (laughs) Look, it's class war. It was class war during the deflationary period when prices were falling, when uh, interest rates were negative. Uh, It was class war then, it is class war now. They're class warriors, par excellence, these people. And they will never miss an opportunity to shift the distribution of income and wealth further towards uh, the stupidly rich (laughs) combination of stupidity and wealth. Um, Let's talk a little bit of economics, shall we? Uh, Yes, inflation is a very serious threat to the lives of the many after years of wage stagnation, having prices going up, and by the way, they are not going up by 10%. They're going up by 10% on average. You know, If you're poor, if you're living in rented accommodation, if you get a bus, if you go to a supermarket, um, one of those that control, are controlled by oligarchy firms, your inflation rate is closer to 20%. If you live in Belgravia, if you live in Holland Park, your inflation rate is probably around four five percent. If you remember, if you are, if you have a mansion, you're paying a mortgage for it. Yeah? You, what's your what's your mortgage rate? Three percent, three and a half percent. But if you are renting, uh, rents are going up by twenty percent. Um, so we are not all paying the same prices, and therefore each one of us, especially each social class, has its own rate of inflation. And the rate of inflation for the working class and the precariat is always larger than uh, the, ra- the, the rate of inflation for the thinking rich, who may actually be experiencing reductions in prices. You know, maybe holidays in Switzerland are going down these days. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. <laughs> um, so the, the the issue is this: uh, you will hear people like the governor of the Bank of England having this debate between them between the Uh, the the ones who are referred to as hawks and the ones who are referred to as dubs. Uh, And the discussion between them is how hard must they hit labor? Should they hit labor very hard or not too hard? This is the discussion between them. Uh, I'm not going to take sides between them because they're both wrong. The reason why we have inflation is not so much that the Bank of England has been printing money as if there is no tomorrow. They have been doing this but they've been doing this since 2008 and the rate of inflation has never escaped why is it escaping now it's escaping for three reasons if i may say okay the first reason is that um, some of the printed money went to the to the many during the pandemic so as long as they printed money it was okay when it only went to the rich so some of the money has gone to the many at the time when the supply chains were interrupted due to lockdown. So there was a constraint on supply and there was a small increase in demand by the majority of people, by working class people, by the precariat, because they had a little bit of money from furlough schemes and so on. They were stuck in the house. Uh, so that gave rise to increases in uh, transport costs and the cost of energy because of this mismatch between the demand and supply. Okay, That's one reason. The second reason is speculation, speculation, because of the increase in in the price of oil, let's say, or in the price of um, shipping a container full of goodies from China to Southampton, of that increase, and let me tell you that only 20% is due to increased costs, 80% is due to increased speculation. So what happens is this speculators see that the cost of transporting a container from Shanghai to Southampton is going up. So what, you know what they do is they they borrow a lot of money, most of it printed by the Bank of England or the Fed or or the European Central Bank, and they go and buy all the containers, (laughs) the container capacity for the next year. Mm -hmm. And then they restrict supply. They are not leasing it. Why? Because they have invested in the speculation that the price of shipping a container will go up. So the one thing they understand about economics is the way to, 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 to gain monopoly profits is by restricting supply. <laughs> so they buy the supply in order to restrict the supply in order to then sell a little bit at a much, much higher price. So you have transport costs and oil costs and natural gas, uh, gas costs. I mean, in Britain you noticed that you had this oxymoron, this huge paradox over the last few weeks. You had a plethora of gas. There was natural gas building up in the United Kingdom. There was no market for it. There was no way of transporting it to Europe because the pipelines connecting Britain to the continent were chock-a-block, okay? And there was not enough capacity for liquefying the natural gas to export it with tankers. So you had too much natural gas and the price of natural gas was going up. (laughs) That doesn't make economic sense, except if you take into consideration the speculation. So one reason, hmm? some money that was printed through furlough schemes was given to the poor, to the poorer. Speculation is the second reason. And the third reason, and that's a massive reason, a reason that uh, we really need to focus on, is that 13 years of socialism for the bankers, since George Osborne, and harsh austerity for the many, socialism for the bankers, printing money to give to the bankers, and and austerity for the many, created very low levels of investment. Because why would you invest, if you are an industrialist, why would you invest in gadgets, in electric cars and so on? When you look around and what you see is a mass of people unable to afford a Tesla or a high-quality gadget of something. So the businesses, instead of investing the money that the Bank of England was printing, uh, they didn't invest because they, they feared that the little people would not be able to buy the stuff that would come out of the other side of the production line. So what they did is they took the money to the stock exchange and bought back their own shares. This is why stock exchanges were doing great. But investment was very low. Now, why am I stressing the importance of investment? Because investment creates jobs, good quality jobs. When investment is low, you have shit jobs, (laughs) precarious jobs only being produced, exploitative jobs, not good quality jobs, not green jobs. You don't have green energy. And you have high long-term prices of energy because you have not invested in it. And you have reliance on Gazprom in, if you're in Central Europe and so on. So these three are the the, the, the elements of a present cost of living discontent. Right? And these are all the result of 13 years of socialism for the few and harsh austerity for the many. Now, instead of accepting that, you have the governor of the Bank of England saying, ah, the working class has to make more sacrifices. No, the working class must not make more sacrifices. What you know, our movement DM 25 um, and me personal are, personally are proposing is this. <clears throat> if we had the proper Labour government, not Keir Starmer's Labour, right? but the proper Labour government, what should happen? Three things. Yes, interest rates should go up. I know that that wouldn't make me very um, popular amongst uh, people who just bought houses, you know, with huge mortgages. <laughs> right? But, you know, you shouldn't have bought those houses with huge mortgages. It was a very big stupid mistake. Okay? And we cannot have the whole of the working class subsidizing your mortgages so that you can make capital gains out of a house when there is a housing crisis. So we should have simultaneously increases in interest rates because the little people are already paying 6 and 7% interest rates. They don't pay the 1% and 2% of the central bank. So put it up to 3% to arrest asset price inflation simultaneously. Haircut the debts of the many. Haircut the debts, restructure the debts of the many. Credit card debt, student debt, all those debts have to be just cut. They cannot be serviced, cut them. An unpayable debt needs to be restructured. I mean, a banker knows that. Only a Tory doesn't know it. (laughs) Tory bankers know it, but they don't speak it because it's against party policy. Um, And and then the third thing that has to happen is, I am not against money printing by the Bank of England. But what I'm saying is that the Bank of England should, the money that they print, the money that they print must go directly into the Green New Deal, into investment, maybe through a national investment bank like the Post Office Savings Bank that used to exist in Britain, like the Green Investment Bank that John McDonald, my uh-huh. friend, comrade uh, John McDonald, and others wanted to create had they won the 2000. 2000- election back then, mm-hmm. uh, and have the Europeans the European, the Bank of England, together with a National Investment Bank, fund green investments. That is the way of containing inflation, while at the same time promoting the investment that hasn't happened in the last 13 years. But for that, you need a radical, progressive socialist Labour Party, the one we don't have ever since Keir Starmer has taken over the asylum. On that,
1: uh, whilst by the way, my just so people who are watching, my camera has decided to go kaput, which I will fix whilst Yannis yeah, answers the next question. My camera, in a way, is a metaphor for the current Labour Party, uh, which is um decrepit and not fit for purpose. So uh, my, my my camera kind of reflects the, the the current state of the Labour Party. Keir Starmer. Now, it strikes me. I'm just interested in your take on Keir Starmer right now. It's quite there's a, one of the funniest articles I've ever read in my entire life. A news article for The Guardian. The headline was Stop Calling Me Boring, Keir Starmer tells Shadow Cabinet. Uh, He's been briefed to big gates by his own Shadow Cabinet colleagues uh, as boring. Keir Starmer has urged his Shadow Cabinet to stop briefing the press that he is boring. Uh, But then it says several of those around the table then echoed their leader's call for unity and discretion in a lengthy exchange described by one Shadow frontbencher as ironically very boring. Now, that's funny on every level because obviously they've, again, briefed against him and called him boring. I think the point I was making there is my view of Keir Starmer I don't think he believes in anything. Uh, He's surrounded by people who do, um, right-wing ghouls um, who don't have any vision other than defining themselves against the left. Um, And um, they're a hungry crocodile, the Labour right. And and Keir Starmer's made his bed with them. And now they've decided he's outlived his purpose. The left have been marginalised. Within the Labour Party. And now they think, well, he's a dud. We can just replace him with a true believer. A, you know, a hardcore uh, Blair out instead. Look, I mean, that was that was obviously me ram that's me and my own diagnosis. But I'm just interested, what's your view of whatever Starmerism is? Is Starmerism a thing? Um, and what do you think? What do you think about the current trajectory of the Labour leadership and what's going on within the Labour Party?
2: I can easily imagine Keir Thomas standing in front of his mirror in the morning and saying to the mirror, be spontaneous, be spontaneous, that
0: kind of
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, paradoxical character. Um, look, I don't know the gentleman. I have to say I, would, I, I, would, I wouldn't want to meet him. Uh, and I'm saying that with a degree of spite because of the way he's treated his own comrades. Uh, He was uh, a member of the Shadow Cabinet under Jeremy Corbyn. He has vilified Jeremy and others. Uh, He has um, uh, made a project out of dividing the Labour Party, of um, introducing an atmosphere, a climate of repression. Uh, the, 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 The way in which he dealt with the but the very real anti-Semitism issue. The way in which he has threatened with expulsion anyone who questions the, you know, the mandate or the belief that um, there has to be a final victory for Ukraine, um, one that uh, sees uh, Vladimir Putin being dragged through international court, and if you don't believe in that, then you are threatened with expulsion from the Labour Party. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, who was accused, together with Momentum and what was called the extreme left or progressives, people like me, uh, he was accused for uh, creating a culture of intolerance, which was completely untrue. Uh, Yes, there were some people around Jeremy who had uh, uh, rather authoritarian attitudes, um, but under Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party was the epitome of uh, a democratic broad church compared with what is uh, now the Labour Party under Keir Starmer. But the main criticism I have, besides the ethics and the the climate that I sense within the Labour Party, which is suffocating for socialists, that was his intent, uh, the main criticism I have is that he has Uh, rendered the Labour Party utterly, utterly neutered Mm -hmm. vis-à-vis the oligarchy. He has removed all the parts of the Labour Party manifesto that were offensive to the oligarchy. And what he has been left with is a set of policies that are playing the role of a petition to the oligarchy, saying, you can trust me. If I get elected, um, I will do whatever it it takes to help the working class, as long as not one of your privileges is touched. Essentially, I will do nothing to help the working class. I will do nothing to help the many, unless I have your consent. This is his message to the oligarchy. That's why um, he was embraced so warmly by the oligarchy and the press, the media that the oligarchy controls. And now you're quite right. He has neutralized, neutered, and sanitized the Labour Party from the perspective of the oligarchy. Uh, he doesn't have what it takes to enthuse the masses, he's not a Tony Blair, he's not a charismatic leader. So now they can easily uh, put him in a dustbin where he belongs.
1: Now, now I'm using my, my dodgy laptop camera, but I can still see you, so that's what matters. Just moving on to Julian Assange, because you've been very vocal in supporting Julian Assange. He faces extradition to the United States. Tell, just tell me again, why is this case so important? Why is it so important, not just for, for, for the left, but actually for journalism as well, for, for genuinely independent journalism that can scrutinise power? So just, just tell me kind of briefly, what, why should people take a stand on this right now?
2: Well, because first they come for, for for Julian, then they will come for you. If you publish something that embarrasses the powers that be, uh, they will have been a precedent uh, of someone whose uh, only crime has been to publish truths uh, that were leaked to him uh, that are embarrassing the great superpower. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great superpower that for the first time will have been granted by the United Kingdom, the judiciary and the government of the United Kingdom, the right to essentially uh, scoop up and arrest and apprehend um, in the same way that they did uh, after 9-11 with anyone they felt like to rendition them to Guantanamo. They can do it to any any journalist around the world, to anyone who embarrasses them. Uh, The only reason why they're hounding Julian Assange was because of those videos that came out of Iraq and Afghanistan Uh, showing to us in the West, uh, in full Technicolor, maybe black and white, the crimes committed against humanity in our name behind our backs. That is the only reason why Julian is being persecuted. Now, it so happens that I had noticed Julian Assange's work and writings before WikiLeaks was uh, a thing. And I have to tell you, Owen, that I was um, reading some of his early work. Uh, I became a fan. And I became a fan. Why? Because when I was 12 or 13, something like that, my mother made me read 1984 by George Orwell. (laughs) And and I was aghast because I could see that that is the world that uh, we are going to have to live in because technology Mm -hmm. was always to create circumstances whereby the oligarchy, the big brother, whatever, uh, through surveillance uh, would make us completely transparent while keeping himself, the big brother, totally opaque. And when I was reading Julian's work before WikiLeaks uh, became well known, he gave me hope because he explained how we can use big brother's technologies, especially the Internet based technologies, in order to create um, some digital gigantic mirror that we can turn towards Big Brother, and we can watch him watching us. Uh, and then he did that. He did. And you have one thing that most people do not realize is the technical competence behind WikiLeaks. Have you wondered how it is that the CIA, the NSA, the powers that be around the world have not managed to bring WikiLeaks the the website down? Uh, they can't do it because the only way. Of bringing WikiLeaks down is if they sh- shut down the whole of the internet. Now that takes mm-hmm. immense expertise. So somebody with that expertise who chooses uh, to embarrass uh, the powers that be and put himself in harm's way—that's uh, who Julian is. Uh, he is a very frustrating person. Look, he's a personal friend of mine. I have to tell you that I have huge rows with him, huge disagreements. Mm-hmm. He can—he you know, really can get on your nerves. <laughs> but I say that, right? And I have the right to say that. I think he wouldn't mind me saying that. He knows that there were many times when I wanted to throttle him. Uh, but make no mistake, folks out there. The only reason why he has been imprisoned for so many years without having been convicted for anything. Uh, the only reason why he's been vilified, the only why, reason why he was not allowed to go to Stockholm to answer the questions about uh, sexual assault, rape, and so on, is because he embarrassed uh, the powers that be, the people who commit mm-hmm. crimes on our behalf behind our backs. This is why it's so mm-hmm. important that he's saved. They come for him so as to come for you immediately after that.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I'm in Spain, so I want to ask you just quickly about the situation here. Now, I've been writing a book for too long, um, as my editors can testify, and it had a whole chapter on Spain. And in Spain, I wrote at length, this was about, wasn't that long ago, 2018. Uh, I wrote at length about Spain as an exception, because Spain didn't have a mass far-right party. Um, Inigo Ejohan, um, and Pablo Iglesias, you uh, know um, looks a bit like me as often be said but uh, anyway but they they often told crowds at the time that um, you know that the mass movements of Spain beginning with indignados had kind of immunized Spain against the far- right party
2: and that now, was right.
1: But it isn't anymore. Vox, of course, is a far right party which is almost leading the opinion polls in Spain. I mean, it's we're talking it's on twenty three percent or so, not far because it's fragmented. Politics is fragmented here since the two party system collapsed. But they are doing extraordinarily well. It's not you can imagine a government with both the PP, for those who don't know, the conservative party in Spain, and and Vox. That's within re- that's within a, that's a possibility. So I'm wondering. What the hell happened in Spain, do you think? And Podemos, of course, are in government. Um, Yolanda Diaz is, I think, someone who, you know, she's got a very charismatic presence. Lots of people think she, you know, she's got a big popular popular base. So my two questions are, what the hell happened with the far right? And do you have hopes for Podemos to stage some sort of recovery?
2: It's a very painful question for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> look. Uh, Podemos and Syriza, the party I was a member of, not actually not a member, but I was allied with and we won the elections in 2015, we were sister parties or brother parties or whatever, fraternal parties. And we were both parties that were created out of the indignados in Spain, in the piazzas, in the squares, people who didn't belong to parties uh, or hadn't belonged to parties, getting together to oppose the austerity programs after the great financial collapse in spain and in greece and it was it was in parallel and it was beautiful you know i remember back in 2011 when we had something like a hundred thousand people um here outside my office where i am today at synagogue square and there were similar demonstrations happening in barcelona in madrid in valencia and so on uh, it felt that you know the prospect of changing Europe and the world was not completely far-fetched. Uh, and, you know, what happened in, uh, in Greece, you know, I'm not going to go into this. The party that that emerged out of that indignados movement effectively surrendered, and that's why I resigned. And I'm now, you know, in another party, a small party that is trying to revive that uh, spirit of that period. Um, in, um, in Spain, the the Podemos, our comrades there, were dealt a major blow by what happened here in Greece. Let me remind you Owen, that uh, in July of 2015, when my until then comrade and friend, the Prime Minister of Greece, Alexis Tsipras, we were together in government, uh, in the end surrendered to the austerity program of the Troika, uh,
0: and I resigned since then, we haven't
2: The Prime Minister of Spain, of the People's Party, Mr. Rajoy, remember him? Huh? He comes out of the meeting of the European Union Council in which Tsipras signed the surrender document on the dotted line. Hmm? Rajoy came out. It's worthwhile looking for that since you're writing a book. Find that video on YouTube. When he comes out, some towards the end of July of 2015, he comes out in front of the Spanish television cameras and he's holding that piece of paper that Tsipras had signed. And you know what he said? He he did this and he said, this is what you get if you dare vote for Spain's Syriza. And he meant Podemos. So we Greeks, progressives here in, Greeks, in Greece, are partly responsible for the major blow suffered by Podemos. The, that's 50% of the responsibility. The other 50% belongs to the leadership of Podemos. Because uh, immediately after that, uh, those of us who did not surrender here in Greece, uh, we tried to have a discussion with our comrades in, in Podemos and warned them against siding with this surrender Over, And we tried to do something which I thought was essential of time. Back then, in 2015, Podemos were around 25, 26 percent of the vote. They were on the verge of replacing the Socialists as the major center-left or left progressive party. They could have done it, but there is a plateau, you know, around 20, 21, 22 percent. Beyond that, to get there, you've got to be able to answer the question that the middle-of-the-road voter somebody who is not particularly political or Marxist or left-wing, whatever, comes to you and says, okay mate, if you win government, and if you're the finance minister, and you go to the Eurogroup, you go to the minister of finance, means to the group, to the grouping in the European Union of uh, finance ministers, or you're the prime minister, and you go to the European Union Council, what are you going to tell them must be done at the pan-European level? What should the European Central Bank do? What should the investment be like, you know? Um, you can't just say that we want another world, and another Europe. You've got to be more specific. So we try to invite them, Pablo, Iglesias, Aragon, all our comrades, to come up with a pan-European left-wing Green New Deal that would be the program for us here in Greece, for them in Spain, so we'll be, we'll be able to answer a middle-of-the-road voters' questions, pertinent questions. What should they do at the European level? at the Spanish level, at the regional level. And they were not interested. We were trying to convince them to run together with us in the 2019 European Parliament election with one agenda. And it was impossible. Uh, Because the reason is, Podemos, within their ranks, they had anti-Europeans, people who wanted Spain to, you know, to do a a span exit, (laughs) you know, to get out of the euro, out of. out of the European Union. They had other people who were far more pro-European. And in the name of some epidermic unity, they chose not to have a European policy. And I was telling them from back then, I'm I'm sounding like someone who wants to say, I told you so, but I apologize for that. But that was my great fear back then was that once you reach a plateau, out of the indignation, then to proceed to forming a government and being the one that leads a government, not to be the junior partner in a social democratic laborite government, as they became in the end, you've got to have a pan-European perspective. And they refused to do that. The result was that the socialists were given a chance, the social democrats, the PSOE, they were given a chance to recover. Uh, they had a charismatic leader There's no doubt about that. Quite smart politician, as it turned out. Uh, And they turned them into the 10 Podemos, into the junior partner. Mm -hmm. The moment you enter as a junior partner, you can only effect marginal change. You cannot change the austerity policies that are imposed by Brussels upon Madrid. You don't have the Ministry of Finance. Uh, Our comrade that you mentioned has the Ministry of Labor. It's not the same thing. The ministry of finance is the one that determines austerity and then the minister of labor has to look after the wounded workers with you know like um, uh, like a nurse <laughs> uh, but not to be the doctor that actually uh, implements a different therapy it's not a very good metaphor but you know what i'm talking about uh, in the end they are no longer that party that carries the wrath of the people out there that can contain the wrath and convert it to progressive energy. That's the opening of the fascists, the opening of Vox. We could say, you know, we were we were warning our comrades of Podemos back in 2016, uh, if you do not have a radical pan European agenda, then there will be a radical right wing party that does. And this is the result. This is the result.
1: Before I ask you about Ukraine, finally, I want to ask something hopeful, and that's France. Now, the French left were being written off only a few months ago. It seemed as though there was a huge existential crisis afflicting the French left, obviously very fragmented, um, and the far right had made big inroads, actually quite depressingly, um, including amongst younger voters, which is not something which is the case in some other comparable Western European nations. In France, the far right actually had a particular purchase, have a particular purchase amongst younger voters. But what's happened since is um, after the debacle of the first round, of course, of the French presidential election, when a divided left allowed the far right to make it into the second round against Macron, they got together, they created a united left front, um, and they came narrowly top in the first round of the parliamentary elections. So what do you think the lesson? I mean, there's an obvious lesson there, I suppose. But one of the things I thought was what's happened in France, which is actually quite unique, I think, is the so-called centre-right have accepted, not just accepted the radical left as legitimate political actors, which they don't in Britain. In Britain, they see them as mortal enemies to be crushed, but actually have accepted them as their leadership. Like the centre-left have accepted themselves as subordinate. In a coalition in which the radical left are dominant, that strikes me as quite a unique situation. I don't think there's any modern comparable situation.
2: Quite so, quite so. Uh, it's it's happened to some extent here in Greece because the radical left party, Syriza, that I was party of, mm-hmm. uh, did exactly the same thing. It um, uh, one government on the basis of a very radical agenda, then did a surrender, flip flopped. Uh, But in the process, it eliminated the center-left. The the equivalent of the Labour Party, the Socialist Party, the PASOK Party, uh, became um, the third uh, party and a distant third at that. And now there are attempts, to, essentially, for the Syriza Party to co-opt the Socialists. But look, uh, your question brings out the importance of electoral systems. Uh, the, what happened in France now, by the way, I completely support Jean-Luc Mélenchon, I've had my disagreements with him, but I congratulate him for putting together this coalition. He's got the support of my party and the, the, the movement I belong to. Um, it's essential that on Sunday, all French voters come out and progressives vote with both hands, as we say here in Greece, for the Melanchon coalition. So, I needed to pre- preface what I'm saying with this. But it is a creation of the electoral system. You've got a, a strange kind of first-past-the-post in France. It's not exactly first, It's not like Britain, because there are two rounds, and the first round, uh, the first three go through. <laughs> not the first two, but the first three in uh, parliamentary constituencies. Uh, which means that, however, had the, uh, the France insoumise... The Melanchon Radical Party, the Communists, the Socialists, and the Greens contested them separately. They would get no seats between them. Maybe one or two out of 570, whatever however many there are. Uh, so the, the electoral system forced them to get together. And, and it's not, and it is because it's not first past the post like, you know, a fully fledged true blue first of them, first past the post. If it were, then Melanchon's party would not do well. Uh so it's it's this mixture of first past the post and a bit more of a proportional system that allowed for this coalition to, to happen. Now, what really worries me, however, and I have to tell you this, is that if they don't manage to, to disrupt the dominance of the National Assembly of Macron, if they don't form a majority, if the left does not achieve a majority, which I don't think they will. I very much fear that the day after the elections, this coalition is going to fall apart, and it will fall apart because they don't have, they don't see eye to eye almost on anything except the need to get elected. Uh, if you look at the former Socialist Party um, and their position vis-à-vis austerity, they are completely full, fully fledged austerians. They are not against austerity. Uh, they are totally pro-NATO. Uh, Melanchon is very skeptical of NATO, and adamantly opposed to austerity. The Greens have a different agenda, uh, the Communist Party, I never understood what the French Communist Party was, stood for in the last ten years, they always confuse me, because whoever I speak to gives me a different story. So the whole thing is not going to, you know, if, we, if we're having this conversation six months from now, I don't think there's going to be a left-wing coalition that will have survived. I hope it does, I hope I'm wrong. But they would have survived had they won because then they would have managed to impose Jean-Luc Mélenchon as the Prime Minister, who would be uh, essentially undermining Macron's policies. There would be this kind of difficult cohabitation, which would be great fun for all of us. Um, you know, the, I believe in disruptive politics, uh, disrupting the capacity of the bourgeoisie to effect class war against the many. That would be brilliant if we could do it.
1: Uh, just great on the French Communist Party. One of their main planks, I'm sure you know, was to increase meat production in France. Truly bizarre. Um, just finally, Ukraine. So, you, in fact, this is your pinned tweet. So it's a very succinct summary, of course, of your position. The only issue today should be to stop the war and to secure the withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukraine. The only way that could happen is a Washington-Moscow agreement that Russia withdraws in exchange for a commitment of Ukrainian neutrality. Anything else is warmongering. So, obviously, we're now... Wow. What well, June? So we're about four months, well over a hundred days, of course, into a, a, a horrific war, which has killed uh, tens of thousands of people, of course, uh, from Ukrainian civilians to working class Russian soldiers who've been thrown into a bloody cauldron. I'm just wondering, in terms of your view at the moment, because I was mean, interested, I interviewed Noam Chomsky about this a few weeks ago, which caused a big uproar. People actually completely misconstrued what he said, I have to say, because he supported, for example, arming Noam Chomsky, sorry. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I thought you misheard, sorry, misheard what I said. Um, mm. th- they, th- You know, he supported arming Ukraine for self-defence, but, you know, people ignored even that position. So I, I'm just wondering, in terms of your position, I mean, take take note, I mean, if there was a referendum in Britain, I would vote to withdraw from NATO. I mean, I don't support NATO. The, the position, I suppose, a lot of Eastern Europeans, including Eastern European leftists, uh, like Polish leftists and others, will say to people like myself is, You're correct that when we look at Western imperialism, the horrors of Iraq, of of Libya, uh, going back to Vietnam, but generally the economic, a global economic system rigged in favour of Western powers, that that global power, that particular evil, is understandable that you would focus on. But from their perspective, they think, including people like myself, fail to grasp that in Eastern Europe, there is a genuine fear, historically grounded, of Russian domination and that's driven lots of those people to end up in a position of supporting nato a position that neither you and I you or I have so i'm just wondering in terms of ukraine in terms of how this horrible conflict is resolved given it is i mean it is a war of aggression waged by by putin's regime what in terms of if there is there has to be a peace settlement in the end um What do you think, though, of a position of supporting, arming Ukraine so it ends up in a more advantageous position? And in terms of neutrality, given the statements of Putin and his colleagues, Medvedev and others, it does suggest that they're driven by greater Russian chauvinism, that the talk of NATO seemed to be something of an excuse, but actually they are trying to annex Large parts of Ukrainian territory in a neo zarist project. So I'm just wondering, that was a lot, sorry, but that's the kind of general, you know, where, where are you at at the moment on
2: Ukraine? There are three different conversations, and they're all interesting, except that one of them is the most pressing. The most pressing conversations about how to achieve peace, you I know, mean, an honorable peace, a peace that allows Ukraine to build. Uh, for the Ukrainians to live uh, peacefully, democratically, uh, and in a sustainable way, I think that is the most pressing question. The other two conversations are theoretically interesting. One is, for instance, you know, what was the real reason why Putin invaded, and you know, to what extent do we, can we blame um, NATO's expansion for that, or would it have happened anyway? You know, this is. This is an academic question, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I spent decades being an academic, I'm not against academic questions, but I think we have a moral responsibility to address the pressing question, not the academic question, at this very juncture. And there's a third conversation, which I have to say really pains me. Uh, makes me, It's caused me a lot of uh, almost depression and suffering. This is the accusation by left-wing comrades in uh, Poland, in Eastern Europe, that I am a, personally... I've been accused of being a, a West splainer, you know, the Western version of the mansplainer, Um, with arguments like, you know, um, you deny us agency. Um, what right do you have to have an opinion as to whether we should be members of NATO? Um, this is very painful, um, primarily because I'm an internationalist, <laughs> and by that I mean that, you know, I want. Poles and Czechs and Ukrainians to have a view about what's happening in Greece. And I would never say to them that who the hell are you to tell me what we should be doing in Greece? Uh, that's what it means to be an internationalist. And to be shut out of a discussion about what's happening in Eastern Europe because I'm not an Eastern European, um, You know, is something that gives me pause and a lot of uh, uh, heartache. But forget that. Let's concentrate on what really matters because there are pe- people who have been killed today. And uh, what we have is we have a, a monstrous, a monstrous uh, egging on by the United States of America. Uh, Putin is a war criminal. I've been saying this, you know, my friend Jeremy Corbyn has been saying, it. I remember, you know, 2001, Jeremy Corbyn and Tony Benn were demonstrating outside the House of Commons against Putin for Chechnya. And I was in the Senate of the University of Athens at the same time. Um, being the lone professor in the Senate of the University of Athens, voting against giving Putin uh, an honorary doctorate. So nobody needs to school us on the criminality of Vladimir Putin. right? And I'm so pleased that the Ukrainian army has given him a bloody nose, that he had to withdraw from Kharkiv, he had to withdraw from Kiev, that his uh, progress... Progress in in inverted commerce. progress in the Donbass is really very small, slow, and painful. That he had gunships being sunk in the Black Sea. I'm very, very pleased for that. The last thing I would have wanted would be for him to walk in there like he walked into Chechnya and kill tens of thousands of people unopposed by the West, by local defenders, fighters, and so on. But the question now is how does this end? I mean, you posed it. How does it end? And the Uh, the tweet that you kindly read out, which I tweeted on the first day of the war, I think still stands. Uh, We need to have a Ukraine that is sovereign, democratic, within at least the territory that existed, that it had before the 24th of February. So the number one priority should be the Russian troops to withdraw to where they were before the 24th of February. Mm -hmm. Maximalism at this point to say that we should never have a peace deal with Putin to say what Joe Biden so recklessly said that we should drag Putin through some kind of international court, which international court, the one that the United States has not endorsed, uh, <laughs> the one that Russia will have to accept in the National Security Council of the United Nations so that it is instituted. I mean, this is just madness. and and who's going to do that? Will the Ukraine are we going to fight until the last Ukrainian? I mean, we, we the West, uh, resemble the United States before Pearl Harbor. You know, they were arming the, the, the Brits, they were arming, to some extent, the Soviets and so on, but they were not, they didn't have skin in the game before Pearl Harbor. There is something seriously unethical saying to the Ukrainians, you go and exact a final victory out of Vladimir Putin and drag him through the international courts. Um, it is not impossible that Ukraine can win a final victory if it, they are prepared to uh, do what the Mujahideen did in Afghanistan. You know, to have a 10-year war, a war of attrition, a total war, whereby, you know, at some point, Russian society rebels against Putin uh, they're depleted of you know, fighting men and uh, personnel like they were in Afghanistan back in the uh, 1980s. Uh, it is not impossible. But is Afghanistan a role model for Ukraine? Because if we do that, if we allow this to happen, by the time it all ends, Ukraine will be a wasteland. Um, Hundreds of thousands of people will have died. And I very much fear that the Russia that we will have then, once Putin is toppled, is not going to be a better Russia than the one we have today. It's not going to be the strongman who will, you know, kill uh, and replace Putin, is not going to necessarily be a Democrat uh, or a liberally-minded uh, pro-Western, pro-Ukrainian person. It could be somebody far worse or just as bad. Yeah. Uh, so, t- to me, what is important is to continue defending Ukrainian ter- territory, yeah. to continue the struggle on the ground, while at the same time Joe Biden picking up a phone and calling Putin and saying, let's talk. Here are elements of a deal. And let me just very briefly describe what I would say. Okay. You need something that you can call a victory, Vladimir. So we agree that NATO will not expand into the Ukraine. Uh, You agree to withdraw your troops to where they were before the 24th of February. Uh, We agree that there will be a negotiation of the United Nations for Crimea uh, that will mm, take place in five years from now. So you kick Crimea into the long grass, because there's no way that Vladimir Putin would accept to have a discussion of Crimea today. And remember, that was not the discussion on the 24th of February. Um, Regarding the Donbas, which is a very difficult place uh, in terms of uh, multi-ethnicities, of uh, different local interests and local oligarchs, different parts. It's very much like Northern Ireland, the Donbass. So what about a Good Friday-like agreement for the Donbass, which is guaranteed by the European Union, like the Good Friday Agreement was, by the Americans, like the Good Friday Agreement was, by Moscow and Kiev. Um, It is possible to give him a way out, continue the pressure on him through Ukrainian resistance, And at the same time, give him something that he can take to his generals, to his oligarchs, to his public, to his inner circle, and portray it as a victory. Uh, That, to me, would be uh, a kind of development, a peace treaty, an agreement, that would leave everybody dissatisfied, but which would be optimal from the perspective of humanism, of saving the most lives and allowing Ukraine to become something like Austria was during the Cold War a country which is closely linked, a democratic country, which is closely linked to the rest of Europe, even maybe become a member of the European Union, but not a member of NATO, not a country that stations American troops or nuclear weapons.
1: Just very finely, it's kind of linked, it's a bit sensitive, but uh, Paul Mason is someone both of you, both you and I have known for a long time. He's done some excellent journalism in the past, including, he did in, in terms of obviously very much came to prominence in lots of places because of his coverage of the crisis in Greece, actually, um, and the rise of Syriza, but also, you know, lots of social issue, journalism, social justice issues in in Britain. Now, I don't even know what to say, really. Um, There's been this big controversy involving allegedly leaked emails, which I should say he hasn't confirmed or denied, which... Show him mapping out a kind of mind map of British left organizations and how they're interlinked, and suggesting a kind of pro Putin um, web um, in which certain organizations and individuals need to be deplatformed and targeted, and allegedly approaching the British Foreign Office's counter disinformation unit. It's caused obviously a lot of anger um, and horror, I think, and shock again. He's not confirmed or denied. He's refused to confirm or deny uh, what's happened and has argued that he's a victim of Russian state actor-linked kind of attack, I suppose. I just wondered, what's your general take, Yanis, on what's happened?
2: One of the things that um, makes me lose my will to live is the civil war within the left, ever since I was a very young person. I remember stories that my father was telling me of things that were happening in the 1940s and 50s that involved uh, this kind of civil war. Uh, And also some members of uh, the party of the left uh, who would um, at some point appear to be targeting comrades. Now, I do not want to be party to this uh, civil war. Paul Mason is somebody I've known for years, um, I've had him in this building. Uh, uh, we've worked together, we've cried together over you know, the austerity programs here in Greece. Uh, we had a major disagreement at the end of my tenure in the finance ministry, because he supported Cyprus's surrender. Um, he thought it was the only thing that Cyprus could do. I thought it was um, unforgivable what Cyprus did, so we had a polite disagreement. The only reason why I'm answering your question is because I read those emails. And if they are valid, if they are true, uh, we have the odious in pursuit of the contemptible. Because to map out your comrades in a manner reminiscent of how the NSA and the CIA maps out subversives who are creating problems for the powers that be. Those very maps with Jeremy Corbyn at the center as somehow, you know, the the linchpin of the pro-Putin propaganda. I only had to look at that because I know Jeremy, okay? I've criticized Jeremy, he's criticized me, but we are mates, right? Like I've criticized Julian. But one thing I know is that Jeremy is not pro-Putin, <laughs> as I said before. You know, in two thousand and one, we were demonstrating against Putin. Um, it reminds me of you remember some Trotskyites back in the day when the United States under George W. Bush were invading uh, Iraq. There were these former Trotskyites, including some very good comrades, some you know, Christopher Hitchens, for instance. You know, a fantastic man, a man whose work. Shaped my thinking. Um, who actually supported the invasion of Iraq and vilified those of us who didn't. Okay. Uh, now, Christopher, I would like to think, was never part of a shadowy attempt to deplatform anyone. But if Paul Mason has been part of an attempt behind the scenes of deplatforming comrades like me, hmm, we had disagreements. So what? I would never deplatform Paul Mason or anyone, for that matter. I would never create a mental map where I would, you know, position my comrades, whether I I, I fell out with them or not is irrelevant, as uh, agents of uh, the devil incarnate living in, in Moscow, especially when it's so untrue. That kind of practice um, is one of the few things that make me want to run into a cave and not appear again. And there aren't many things that, 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 that give me that feeling because I'm a very gregarious person. I, you know, I believe in politics. I believe constantly being on the streets you know, in meetings in parliament with people that I disagree with, having fierce debates, especially with comrades. But this underhanded mapping along the lines of the intelligence services, practices, your comrades. As I said, it's the hideous in pursuit of the disgraceful, the contemptible.
1: Well, it's a, it's a sad note to end on, but uh, we've covered a huge amount of ground, and uh, I think that was as eloquent um, as ever. Um But honestly, Yannis, yeah, thanks so much. We've, we've talked about so many different issues across the world, uh, so many pressing issues facing the left, the labour movement, and the general struggle for the different sort of world that both you and I would prefer. Um, But I really, really appreciate it, so thanks for joining us as ever. Well, thank you for doing it,
2: Owen. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road. Uh, forward slash orange jones 84 leave us some stars that'd be nice spread the word and i look forward to
0: speaking to you soon